from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to the CR podcast. This will be our last episode of 2020. And we want to look back a little at uh, what happened in 2020, but also look forward a bit to 2021. My name is Christian Ondal and uh, I'm based in Berlin. And we will look at Europe also from our three offices, which is London, Brussels and Berlin. From London, joining us is Charles Grant, our director. Hi, Charles. Hi, Christian. And from Brussels, if I'm not mistaken, is Camino. Hi, Camino. Hi, Christian. Actually, I'm in France at the moment. I'm en route to Spain for what it promises to be a very different Christmas this year. Oh, yes, indeed. A very different Christmas. Well, good luck on, good luck on, that, on that long journey. So let's start by looking back. What was the most important thing that happened in Europe in 2020? I will go first, the pandemic. <laughs> Now you, Charles, what else? I would say Brexit, perhaps not the most important issue, but pretty, pretty important for both Europe and, and of course, the UK. Then also Biden's victory in the presidential election has huge implications for the world, including for Europe. Excellent. So we will come to both of that. And uh, Camino, what, what, what do you think was the most important if we take those three away? Well, Christian, as somebody who has spent much more time than she would have liked with her kids this year, I'm afraid I would have to say the most important thing was the pandemic as well. But of course, you're telling me to choose something else. And for me, that would be the rule of law fracas between the European Union on the one hand and Hungary and Poland on the other. Okay, let's let let's let's come to all of that. Um, and maybe because we, you know, the pandemic is clearly the most important thing that that, that happened or the most impactful. Uh, maybe maybe we can start with that. And I think the first thing that came to people's minds after that immediate health impact was. What is the economic fallout of all of this? Um, but I was actually quite impressed by how policymakers in Europe uh, reacted to this crisis. First of all, they were really fast and comprehensive in their approach of safeguarding uh, economic stability and financial stability. It seemed that the lessons from the last decade of crises uh, had been learned to be bold uh, early in this. And the European Central Bank also played a crucial part right from the beginning in being very bold and very decisive. Um, But that was also needed, right? Uh, because we, we we clearly needed some way of tackling the economic fallout of this to make sure that this pandemic does not create further economic divergence in Europe. Because me as an economist, I think part of the appeal of Europe as an economic project was that it was supposed to be a convergence machine, that countries over time would converge economically. And sort of the last decade of crises uh, threatened that narrative to some extent, particularly in the euro crisis. And, and this pandemic was, again, quite severely threatening to do the same. Christian, I can see that the, the recovery fund was a great way of healing the political rift between North and South. The Southern countries understood that the North was prepared to share the responsibility for ensuring a healthy Eurozone and basically help them financially. Politically, I can see it's, it has been a great success. There's much less resentment today in Italy towards Germany and the Netherlands than there was in the spring. But what about economically? Is it, is it just a political symbol or do you think macroeconomically it'll really help to achieve convergence in the Eurozone? 
Whether it will achieve full convergence, of course, is is very hard to say. Um, the full impact of this pandemic is, is still uncertain, not just in the short term, now that we are in lockdowns again, but also in terms of the of the medium term economic impact. So how fast can people be reemployed, for example, which sectors have suffered long term damage and so forth. But leaving that aside, the recovery fund is economically big and meaningful. Take Greece, for example. Greece will receive roughly 12% of its GDP uh, in, in grants to spend on investment. That's, that's a huge transfer um, and which comes on top of the, of the European budget overall. In 2021, if we look forward, the, the focus will be on the implementation of all of this. And, and this is the main thing to watch out for because these funds offer Greece and others the opportunity to make really big changes to how their economies work in terms of the digital transition, the green transition, but also other aspects. But that only happens, of course, if this is implemented well. And I've recently looked at, at, at the Greek plan, for example, and that is all quite sensible what's in there. But it is a huge challenge for any government and bureaucracy to spend that much money that quickly uh, in a meaningful way. Any government would struggle with that. But for those who hope that this is sort of a first step towards further economic and fiscal integration uh, in Europe, it is crucial that this recovery fund is made successful or that it is seen as successful because if it's not uh, that would set set back fiscal integration for a very very long time indeed but but here's here's one thing that came to my mind first when i saw these figures of course and as an economist i just immediately thought okay what does this mean in terms of gdp and and then i saw eastern europe despite not being hit hard by the pandemic in the first wave was getting a lot of money and my my first thought was okay we are putting a lot of money on the table to bribe them to agree to things on the rule of law that they don't like. Um, and that seems to turn out to be the case, right? Because we seem to have used this pandemic and this unique uh, opportunity to spend a lot of money um, to sort of bribe our way into a new rule of law mechanism. Or is that is that too cynical of you, Camino? Um, you are the expert on that. Did we make a big step here uh, or is that just just a baby step? Actually, Christian, I think you are being too cynical. You are being uh, too, too, too much on the figures, perhaps, uh, and not not on the politics of it. Uh, because basically, uh, neither Poland nor Hungary, uh, which are sort of the m major stumbling blocks when it comes to the rule of law, agreed to anything. So you know that we have this um, so-called uh, rule of law conditionality mechanism by which uh, the European Union will only uh, give EU money to those countries that uh, sort of comply with the rule of law. And that mechanism was agreed uh, by what we call qualified majority voting, so without the votes of both Hungary and Poland. So if we were trying to um, bribe them, we uh, fail uh, spectacularly. Uh, in any case, um, you both know and, and our, our listeners know that uh, both Hungary and Poland um, wanted to veto the recovery funds, and they threatened to do that for a long time. Uh, so Merkel, who is in charge of the of the presidency of the Council this semester, did what she does best, and she managed to get uh, both parties, so the European Union and Hungary and Poland, to agree to a compromise interpretation of this conditionality mechanism during last week's European Council summits. So to me, this mechanism, as you were asking, is a big step despite this interpretation, because even if both Orban and Morawiecki were able to say they want a concession, a closer look, the words of the EUCO conclusions 
adds little to nothing to the mechanism, which means, in my view, that the compromise does not mean that the conditionality mechanism will not go ahead next year as foreseen. So one of the issues that divided the East and the West in the last couple of years was the issue of migration. Um, has there been any progress in 2020 and, or will, will there be any progress in 2021? What do you expect? Well, there was a big compromise, uh, the so-called new migration pact that was published in September uh, by the European Commission and actually uh, partially a big effort of, again, uh, the, German, the German presidency. And it looked quite sunny in the sense that um, it was a compromise that had something for everybody, right? So, for example, it accepts that countries can choose not to take asylum seekers in, but they have to pay or help for sending them back to the countries of origin. So this proposal, whether one thinks it's morally acceptable and politically feasible or not, was devised to please both countries of entry and migration skeptics. So it was sort of like a big breakthrough that everybody expected would go, you know, where other proposals did not go. And yet, uh, when it came to discuss it uh, at the member state level, uh, no country seems to like it. Um, so I'm a bit less optimistic than I was uh, when the proposal came out um, in, in what will happen in 2021. I think that it will be, uh, again, uh, one of the most difficult files for the European Union to deal with, together with the rule of law. So one of the other impacts of the pandemic um, is that borders were closed. So that after the refugee crisis, once more, we, we saw closed uh, Schengen borders. Is that a cause for concern? Uh, or is that just the nature of the pandemic? And once the pandemic is over, we will go back to normal. Has, has there been any meaningful impact, Camila? Right. So I'm of the unpopular opinion that this not should be a, a cause for concern, at least when it comes to the Schengen area. area. Remember that internal borders are open. I mean, I'm in France, as, as, you can, as you can hear. Although, of course, travel restrictions remain in many countries. Uh, one can only enter under stringent reasons and with a negative COVID test. Uh, but to me, this is not so much a problem for Schengen, as I was saying, which was devised with the idea that, you know, man-made problems or natural catastrophes or pandemics might happen and that member countries may sometimes need to close their borders. The problem is that restrictions have been uneven and they've been at times arbitrary. And this uncoordinated response is what imperils the well-functioning of the single market, which is, to me, the main problem here, because they stop the free movement of people across borders. Finally, another problem has been, of course, the so-called so blanket travel ban for non-Europeans that the Commission recommended at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, and now is trying to, uh, to lift. But this is, I'm afraid, bad news for Britain, because that means that uh, as a third country, uh, you know, British uh, citizens will not be able to travel uh, as freely as they as they used to be, also because um, they will face restrictions of traveling because of the pandemic. Uh, so that sort of leads me to uh, Brexit, Charles. And I know that we are in the middle of a very turbulent week and predictions are very difficult to make. But do you think the European Union and the UK will finally make a deal? Well, uh, Camila, we're recording this on the 16th of December, and it looks 
quite likely but not certain that there'll be a deal. I'm assuming there will be a deal, uh, but I hope there is because I think no deal is really bad for the EU and even worse for the UK. But um, let, let, let me just say whether there's a deal or not, I think we can draw certain conclusions from, from the Brexit process anyway, whatever the precise details, whether Britain strikes a deal or not. Firstly, the British, British are going to face a very difficult few years. Perhaps over the, going over the top to say we're going to be the sick man of Europe, which is what the British like to call the Turks in the 19th century. But economically, we are having a very difficult time because COVID struck the UK worse than most countries think we're due to shrink the economy by 12% in 2020. You'd have a budget deficit of 18% of GDP, which is the worst in the developed world. And, uh, and so Brexit's going to impose further difficulties on the economy, because even if there is the hard deal that I think we, we may well get, it's going to cause a huge damage to manufacturing industry because of friction at the border that will hit cars, food processing, chemicals, aerospace, pharmaceuticals and other industries. Service industries will take a hit as well, particularly the city of London, due to losing passporting rights and so on. So the economy is going to have a, a cold shower uh, to, to live with for the next couple of years, which will be quite difficult. It's not just the economics, it's the politics as well. I mean, we're going to see strains in the unity of the United Kingdom because the chaos of, the, of, of Brexit, I think, and I think there will be quite a lot of chaos even if there's a deal, and the economic hit of Brexit will allow the Scottish National Party in Scotland, which faces elections in May, to say, look, don't stay in the UK. They drag us out of the EU against our will, and now they can't even manage the Brexit process. That'll help the SNP. As to the Irish, uh, there will, uh, whether there's a deal or not, there will be a new border in the Irish Sea on control and controls on goods going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland and Great Britain. The Northern Ireland fine will find itself effectively in the EU single market, unlike the rest of the UK. So that'll impose political strain as well. And we don't know what the results of those are. So I think the UK is going to have a difficult time. Charles, so, so looking, looking forward a bit more, what, what, is there anything broader that we have learned from this negotiation um, for the future of the UK, uh, your relationship? Well, I think we've learned, we've learned that, that the exit process from the EU is very like the, the accession process getting into the EU. Those of us who studied the accession of the various member states who've joined in the last 20 years know that, um, in theory, it's a negotiation between two equals and the country joining the EU and the, and the EU itself. In practice, the EU sets the terms, except for some details. If the country trying to join the EU doesn't meet those terms, it doesn't get in and that's that, and the EU can live with not having another member state joining. It's rather like that in reverse to Brexit. Because the EU is so much bigger than the UK, and the UK needs a free trade agreement so much more than the EU needs a free trade agreement. There's more of the UK depends, more of the UK's trade depends on the EU than vice versa. So for the accession process, the sorry, the Brexit process, once the UK decided what its red lines were, the EU knew roughly what kind of deal it was going to give the UK. And it's giving the UK such a deal. There will be in the deal, assuming that there's a deal agreed, there will be, for example, controls on the level playing fields that the British can't undercut. European companies too much and, and as the EU would see it engage in unfair competition the EU will set the terms and the UK has to accept those terms and it will accept those terms because if not there's no deal which would be very damaging to the UK and thus I think this will have the effect of discouraging other countries from leaving the EU for a long time to come. Thanks and what, what do you think is the impact of Brexit on the EU Charles? Um, I mean we're, we're losing for good now one, one, of the, one of the biggest member states and going into a new relationship but that leaves the EU um, sort of in a different shape. What, what do you think is the most important impact? 
I think the EU is evolving in ways it wouldn't have evolved if the British were still inside. Um, not dramatically, but I think for a start, we, you've talked about the recovery fund, Christian, and the recovery fund is an all EU fund for helping the countries ravaged by the coronavirus pandemic. If the British were still there, they would not have wanted to contribute to it, I suspect. It would have had to have been a, a Eurozone fund, not an EU-wide fund. Um, I think the French, current French obsession with strategic autonomy, the idea that the EU should be able to sort out its own affairs and do what it wants to do without being bossed around by either America or China, that, that is, is, is proceeding apace, really, partly because the British are not around to put a brake on it. I mean, the Poles and some Germans are not enthusiastic for it, but the British would have been there saying, hang on, if you build up too much European defence, maybe that'll damage transatlantic relations and deter the US from wanting to defend Europe. So uh, then I think, again, on economic policy, uh, the EU's policies are becoming more French, meaning a bit more protectionist. There's a lot of talk now in Brussels about building up European champions who can resist American or Chinese competition. The merger rules may be tweaked to make that easier so that uh, there are more European champions, more, more tough line on uh, on resisting foreign investment in the UK from dubious sources. So I think um, uh, the French are driving this and the Germans have sometimes resisted, but without the British to resist it, the French will get their way more often. And of course, my own view is that one of the, the most important consequences of Brexit really is that France and Germany are left dominating the EU. The Italians and the Spanish have too many economic problems to stand in their way. The Poles have too many enemies and too many bad relations with other national capitals to stand in their way. So France and Germany are dominant. And I would say France will be particularly dominant in the next few years because Mer Angela Merkel is due to leave. In fact, Christian Maps, you would tell us something about the impact of Merkel's departure on Germany and on Europe and, and who, who might replace her, do you think? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> so I think the only thing that is certain is that Merkel will leave at the end of 2021 and Germany will have election. Um, and it's clear that nobody can replace her experience or her style, um, both domestically and on the European stage easily. Um, I think it was fortunate timing, probably, that Germany held the presidency now at the end of 2020 to help um, get, get some very complex issues out of the way. Um, but overall, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. Um, the CDU has to pick a centrist leader. Anything else would be madness politically. And, and Merz, uh, the, the, the more right-wing conservative from the late 1990s who just magically came back to politics now, uh, is popular among conservatives in the public, but it is the party delegates who will vote on the next CDU leader. And they have a much more sober assessment of which candidate best fits uh, this CDU's ambition. And they know quite well that Merkel has shifted the CDU to the middle, um, where it's almost impossible to form a government without it. Um, she has won uh, the female vote. Uh, she has won the centrist vote. She has won the migrant vote, all of which would be at risk if, if someone like Mertz became leader. So I'm, I'm fairly certain that they will pick a centrist uh, leader and the CDU centrist is sort of a staunchly pro-European conservative, and so we'll continue on this um, compromise-setting, uh, middle-of-the-road European course that, that that Germany has has followed under under the Grand Coalitions, and 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 the Greens and the uh, and the SPD they will of course have a different policy platform, mostly domestically, a little bit also on the European side, for example, more openness on on, on joint fiscal spending and the like, um, and the candidates on offer. Um, are quite strong, I think. Um, Scholz, the current finance minister, is an experienced war horse, if I may say that, um, and, uh, and, and trusted hands. And uh, um, Annalena Baerbock, the likely uh, head candidate of the, of the Greens, 
um, is arguably one of the most talented uh, politicians that Germany has with a green party behind her that is absolutely ready to govern and to make compromises. So I think I think the future of German politics after Merkel is not, not bleak at all. But, but I, I would like to emphasize one point that is, um, that, that, that Germany's approach to Europe is, is much more rooted in, in sort of Germany's long-term interests rather than um, affected much by the, by, the, by the current colors of the, of the government. And one thing that, that I, would like to, um, I would like to know more about from you, Charles, is sort of what role the U.S. plays in that. Because it seems to me, at least, that with the Biden administration, um, we could well see Germany putting less emphasis or less urgency on the sort of open strategic autonomy of Europe. And again, more emphasis on the transatlantic cooperation that Germany is, is uh, or used to be very comfortable with. Um, or what do you think is, is the impact of the US elections on not, not just Germany, but, but Europe more broadly? I think the impact is inevitably quite large. Of course, we must remember that for the last 20 years or so, including when Barack Obama was president, the US was pivoting to Asia to quote uh, or to quote Obama and, and Hillary Clinton, his, his then Secretary of State. Um, uh, now we have a President Joe Biden who, who actually wants to be nice to the Europeans, who respects the European Union, who believes in multilateralism and alliances, so much more to the Europeans' taste. But we, nevertheless, the Middle East, perhaps to some degree, and certainly Asia to a large degree, will take up the time and wave band of, of, of Biden and his chief lieutenants. So I think we shouldn't expect... It won't be like the old days when, when Bill Clinton and other US presidents were around, much more focused on, on Europe. I think he will have a go at restoring America's soft power. By, by not being Trump will actually help hugely. But because the Republicans are going to remain powerful in Congress, let's in the Senate, the Senate in particular, let's wait and see what happens in the Georgia elections in January. It may be Biden, difficult for Biden to present a completely fresh face to the outside world because the Republican Party will remain... Uh, a shackle on a limiting a constraint on what Biden can actually do because it'll still remain very powerful. So on the uh, on, on the relationship between uh, the US and the EU, one aspect that comes in, of course, is uh, is China, because that is, um, as you said, the, the US pivot to, to, to Asia and also Europe sort of redefining its role in the world and and vis-a-vis and -vis China. So so what what is what is the impact there? Well, I think the Chinese are quite glad to see the back of Donald Trump in one respect, because he was unpredictable and really quite xenophobic some of the time with his tariff wars against them. On the other hand, Trump was a great source of uh, disunity and disarray in the West, and the Chinese will miss that. One thing that strikes me is every time there's a global crisis this century, the Chinese have profited and the Europeans and Americans have had difficulties. Think back to the Iraq war, uh, the Afghanistan war, the financial crisis of 2008 and onwards, and then the, the, pan, the way the pandemic has affected different countries, and then Trump's presidency. Each of these things actually has damaged America's reputation and boosted China's reputation. I and mean, certainly in many parts of the world now, people think China handled the pandemic much better than America. In fact, it, it did objectively handle it much better than America did. So China's soft power has been on a roll. Its, its real hard power has been on a roll, thanks to the incredible growth of its economy. It actually grew, has grown in 2020, unlike most other countries, and it plans to certainly grew by 2% this year, may grow by 8% next year. So China's on a roll, becoming very, very self-confident, very assertive, very arrogant in the views of many, picking fights with countries like, or picking um, diplomatic fights with the Australians, the Indians, the Canadians, uh, the Japanese, and, and, and some, some issues, the Europeans and the Americans. So I think, um, uh, I think this, is, this, is, this, is, this is actually what the most important thing that Biden faced. And I don't expect Biden 
to um, take a very different attitude from Donald Trump towards China, because there is now an, almost a, a consensus within the United States that Chinese power has to be confronted. But I think there's a couple of uh, ways that the West will react to that. And you certainly see um, uh, attempts to establish organizations that do not include China. The British government talks about the D10, meaning the G7 countries, plus India, South Korea, and Australia, a kind of democratic club. Uh, there's the CPTPP, a new trade agreement that America isn't part of, but the mostly democratic countries in Southeast Asia and uh, the Pacific are part of. Biden's talked about conference of democracies. There's talk about new sorts of uh, internet governance, excluding the Chinese, and, and various sorts of data governance. So I think there's, we'll see as a reaction to Chinese stridency and Chinese arrogance that upsets all of the democratic countries. We'll see attempts to build organizations that exclude China. I'm a little bit skeptical about this myself. As Fed as Rory Stewart said in one of our recent CER seminars, the former British Development Secretary, as he said, so many of the world's problems, you need to have China around the table if you're going to solve them. If you're going to solve climate uh, or pandemics or financial instability, you've got to have, or, or, or this development issues, you need to, to be talking to the client Chinese. I'm a little bit sceptical that, um, that, that, that these, these, these bodies being created to exclude China will achieve very much. And what does that all mean uh, for Europe then? Um, what, what, what do you think will, will be the impact? Um, I think Europe and, and the China are currently negotiating an investment treaty and it seems to have, uh, they seem to have made some progress on that. So is, is that first sign that the Biden administration is already changing sort of the behavior of Europe and China? Well, I think, uh, I think the incipient Cold War between America and China, which I think will probably continue in, during the Biden presidency, creates major problems for Europe, because although we share the Americans' uh, concern about Chinese behavior and in increasing assertiveness and un unfair behavior on stealing intellectual property and bullying neighbors, et cetera, et cetera, human rights problems in Hong Kong and, and Xinjiang, and we, we share those concerns, the Europeans do not take a fundamentally strategic view of China. Americans are concerned by the rise of Chinese power per se, Europeans tend to be more concerned by Chinese misbehavior, whether it's abusing Uyghurs or, or um, un giving unfair state aid to its companies. But I don't think Europeans are bothered by China being powerful. Well, Americans are, because Europeans don't take a strategic view. So that's why it's actually going to be very hard for Europeans and Americans to work together on China, partly because the Europeans are divided. China has its friends and allies within the EU who limit EU criticism of China, for example, Hungary, but there are many others as well. Greece is another. Partly just because of this, this we don't take a strategic view of China. Therefore, well, I think we will team up on some issues where we agree with the Americans on China. It's hard, hard for the Europeans to really work very closely. And essentially, on strategic and military issues, the Europeans will always, if we have to choose, will choose to stay with the Americans because they keep us safe in the world. But we will always want to go on trading with China, even when Americans maybe have some doubts about doing that. And we'll always want to talk to the Chinese about solving global problems such as climate and pandemics and other issues. So I do see future tensions between Europeans and Americans on how to handle China. Thank you very much, Charles. And, and thanks for, for, the, for the assessment on, on Brexit as well. And, and thank you, Camino, for, for your assessment on, on the rule of law and migration. Um, I, th I thought that was a, that was a, that was a great look back at a, a somewhat mad year and, uh, and, and a bit of a look forward. We can all use this break, I think, to relax and think about 2021 and then we will restart uh, the CR podcast in 
early January. Thank you all for listening. Uh, remember to subscribe to the CR podcast if you like it. And we all hope at CR that you have a lovely Christmas break. Thank you, Christian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.